Our sermon today will be taken from John chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. This is the word of God. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servant, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servant who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believe in him. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Grace. There's verse 12 in the, in the PowerPoint, but we're going to include verse 12 in next week's uh, sermon. All right, so today we're going to continue in our sermon series through the book of John. As you guys probably know, if you've been with us for a while, we're in this bigger series. Um, next week, we're going to take a break from it and do um, a, a, a sermon that has to do with the resurrection of Christ since it is Easter. Um, but today, we're going to continue this book uh, of John. And what the book of John is, it, it reveals to us, John the author records and reveals to us the identity of who Jesus is, what he did, his purpose on earth, et cetera, et cetera. And we're done with chapter one, finally, after like, what, six weeks, seven weeks? We're, we're done with it, and now we're in chapter two. In chapter one, we see John the author and also another John, John the Baptist, who's, who's another John, recorded in chapter one, tell us who Jesus is. He is, the, he is God who became flesh. Chapter 1 to 18, verses 1 to 18 says, He is the Lamb of God who came to die and sacrifice and give himself as a sacrificial offering to his people, those who would receive him. It says two times him as the Lamb of God to come and pay for our sins by his own blood. And now, beginning of chapter 2, we continue in the story of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. And we'll see in our passage today, I guess we have seen in our passage today, what John the author calls the first sign or the first confirmation. And it's saying that we've made all these claims about who Jesus is in chapter one. The beginning of chapter two is a sign, is a proof that he is truly who he claims to be, and he is truly who we claim him to be in chapter one. How? Well, as a popular Bible story that probably many of us know, John the author records Jesus turning water into wine. This is this first sign. Look at, look at um, verse 11 with us in your printouts. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, the word sign, simeon, in, in Greek, there's, it, it appears six times in the book of John. And every time it refers to Jesus' miracles. And this is the first one of the six recorded in the book of John. And the purpose of this or of these signs is to confirm that Jesus is who he claims to be. All right? Um, um, look at verse 11 again. 
and his disciples believe him. That's the purpose, that his disciples would believe him. But some of us might think here, okay, hold on, hold on. How do we know that John is telling the truth? How do we know that he didn't just make up this sign to confirm all of his own claims in chapter 1, right? Well, I can't take this time to exhaustively defend all the miracles in Scripture. But for now, let's keep this one thing in mind before we start our sermon. Remember that the Gospel of John, the one we've been studying, it was written as a public document meant to be read and spread out among everyone in that region so that they can read it, right? And also notice in this miracle, if you read your passage again, John includes many eyewitnesses. Okay, it's a public document. He includes many eyewitnesses. That means anyone that reads this public document can confirm with anyone mentioned in the story of whether or not John is telling the truth. Example in our passage, people can go to the mother of Jesus and Jesus' disciples to confirm whether or not this really happened. Well, you might think those people are close to Jesus. They're on Jesus' team. So, of course, they might could still lie about it and say that it truly did happen. But that's not all the people included in the story. There's others, right? There's other people in the story who weren't particularly close to Jesus, who weren't particularly on his team. For example, you see the servants in the wedding that's serving the wine. You see the master of the feast, or that's kind of the EO of the wedding, right? The bridegroom or the groom. And all the wedding guests who enjoyed the wine in the wedding. These weren't people who knew Jesus. These weren't people who were particularly close and intimate to Jesus. It seems very unlikely that John the author would have lied about this event, then include many eyewitnesses in the story who aren't really particularly in a relationship with Jesus, then make this lie a public document for everybody available for public scrutiny. I just wouldn't be very wise. He'd be putting himself in a pretty bad spot. Unless, of course, this did truly happen. And John the author was absolutely sure that anyone in public reading this who would attempt to publicly uh, make this uh, or check its authenticity will only further verify that it truly did happen. Okay, that's all I'll say for that. If you have more questions about it, we can talk later. But with that understanding, let's move on to our passage today. Okay, this here we see the first sign out of the six in the book of John. And John the author seemed to think that it's important for him to include this sign or this story for us to read today and for his readers to read at that time. Let's find out why. There's three things I want to point out. First, the Christian mode of cultural engagement. Two, the Christian goal for cultural engagement. And three, the Christian drive in cultural engagement. The Christian mode of cultural engagement, the Christian goal for cultural engagement, and the Christian drive in culture engagement. I'll pray for us, and then we'll start in our first point. Lord, we thank you for another Sunday to come and learn from your word and understand more of who you are and our purpose here on earth. And Father, I beg you that as we explore deeper this passage and get to know what you're truly meaning from it, I beg you that you would um, give us mercy and grace to understand it in our heads and in our hearts that it would lead us to action. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. The first one, the Christian mode of cultural engagement. So let, let's start with a story here, verse 1 and verse 2. Okay, what's the setting? On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, most weddings at the time is similar to Jakarta weddings, believe it or not. The social expectations are very high. And it's almost expected, if you have a wedding celebration, you invite 
your friends, your friends' friends, your family's friends, and, and a lot of people, right? And especially if, if this, a particular family has resources and finances to have a big wedding, then it's expected to like invite the whole town, right? That's kind of the unspoken expectation there. And back then, um, it's kind of like that. It's more than just two people getting married. It's about the parents' connections. It's about the family's social network. It's about not wanting people to feel left out. Perhaps even about protecting the family's honor. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm not making a claim about it being good or bad. I'm just, I'm just saying, similar to us today, that's how weddings were back then. A lot of cultural norms were infused to it. It became more than just two people getting married, like any culture would. We see this, and Jesus was invited. Jesus wasn't particularly probably close to these people, but he was a growing teacher in his time. His stature was becoming more and more popular by his growth of disciples, as we see in chapter 1. So he was probably invited as respect, and his mother and his disciples were all invited with him. And then we see in verse 3 to 5, something tragic happened. We see the wine running out. Let's read it. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, again, to get a context, wine in that day was like a staple in the culture. Just like other cultures today that might have wine as, as a staple in their culture. Italy, France, I don't know. Having a glass of wine with a meal is, is, is normal. It's even almost expected, right? It's not a meal if you don't have wine. It, it's kind of like that back then. So to run out of wine was a huge embarrassment for the family because remember all the cultural norms infused in it? It's about honor. It's about family reputation. It, it's almost like, to equate it to Indonesia today, for a wedding to run out of wine back then is almost equal to a wedding in Indonesia to run out of food. That's a big deal. You, don't run, you do whatever it takes, but you do not run out of food, <laughs> right? You sacrifice everything else. You even sacrifice the quality of food. Do whatever you need to do, but do not run out of food. <laughs> That's a big no-no, right? Could, could you imagine that? Um, in, in the middle of the wedding, you run out of food. And look at Mary's words. They have no wine. It's not that they're running out of wine. They have no wine. We're out. Th this is a time to act, like right now. We have no more wine. It's a dire situation. And it's a big deal for them. Imagine culture in Indonesia. If you run out of food, what would that imply about the family that's hosting the wedding? A lot of things, right? They'd probably say that they're poor. They could only afford the bare minimum. Or maybe that they were stingy. Right? They don't want to spend too much for the people. Or at the very least, it'll say that they don't really care about the guests to put enough effort in to make sure that there's enough food. Either way, it's going to bring upon them a lot of shame, a lot of humiliation, perhaps even loss of relationships with other friends and families. And this family back then was in this very unfortunate situation where the wine ran out. Now, as we talk about this, I know that, or maybe I assume, I did, I assume that you do too, felt a bit of reluctance to empathize with these people. Why? Because it feels kind of silly, right? Th these people find themselves in trouble because of a self-imposed cultural expectation. Why do you care so much about what people think? Just like in Indonesia, the, the pressure of doing a wedding can be 
so unbearable. It could be, it's just, the, it, it has to be so grandeur. It's this big, the list of expectations is unreal. The sheer amount of people expected to be invited, the size of the venue, the expectation to stand there and shake hands with every single person that comes to the wedding, that itself can take hours. The quantity and the quality of food, the wedding gifts, the list goes on and on and on. I saw a few years ago um, uh, in, in, um, in, in a news article that an Indonesian celebrity wedding cost, I don't know what the dollar is, but 4.5 M. Just for the wedding cake. I kid you not, Google it. Just, just for the wedding cake, 4.5 M. It's just so much pressure. There's these self-imposed cultural expectations. And it becomes more than just about two people getting married. It becomes about so many other things. I'm not saying that's good or that's bad. I'm just saying it's like how it was back then. And these expectations can be crushing, can it? But then if you think about it, it's kind of silly because we're crushing ourselves. <laughs> we're, we're, we're imposing upon ourselves self-imposed cultural expectations, and we're crushing ourselves with our own expectations. It's kind of silly and it's hard to empathize with that. And that's not the only example of crushing self-imposed cultural expectations, is it? There are many others. We see it every time we look at that weighing scale, don't we? We see it every time we look at a mirror, don't we? We hear it in the hints that our family members give in their conversations about marriage, because according to their calendar, we're running out of time. We feel it when we, feel, when we see other people having stuff and luxuries that we don't have. I'm not saying these cultural expectations are, or, or, or all cultural expectations are bad altogether. That's not what I'm saying. It could be good to want to lose weight and live a healthy life and just want to be healthier. It could be good, but you want to get married by a certain age because of a certain biological clock and you want to have kids. I'm not saying all expectations are bad, but that's not the expectation I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of cultural expectations that has to do with our image and our sense of self and, 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 and we've imposed it upon ourselves to where it's, it's crushing because we have brought upon ourselves imposed expectations about what it means to be beautiful and what it means to be desirable, and what it means to be valuable. It's led people to anorexia. It's led many to malnutrition, debt, workaholism, depression. Maybe some of you have experienced what that feels like. Maybe some of you might be crushed by it now. How are we Christians meant to deal with these self-imposed cultural expectations? All right. Let's continue with the story. So Mary brought up this wine issue to Jesus, obviously wanting him to do something about this family's problem, right? As silly as, and as self-imposed as this cultural problem might be, Mary still went to Jesus so that Jesus can handle it. So how does Jesus handle it? I want to point two things. One, Jesus removes himself from it. Two, but he also deals with it. He removes himself from it, but also deals with it. First, Jesus removes himself from it. We see this in his answer to Mary in verse 4. Mary brought up this issue to Jesus, and Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I do not recommend you calling your mother woman. <laughs> do not at any circumstance do that. 
<laughs> right, mom? <laughs> um, but the way Jesus meant it, it, it wasn't like woman. It was more, it was more polite. It was more like ma'am or miss. That's kind of how it translates more to. But it's still weird for Jesus to call his own mom woman or ma'am or miss. Why did he do that? It's not to show arrogance. It's not to show disrespect. But it's to remind Mary of who Jesus really was. Saying, remember, I'm not primarily your earthly son. I'm primarily the son of God. That, that's made flesh. That's my identity. Miss, ma'am, woman, don't forget. I'm first and foremost God made flesh before I am your earthly son. I do not entangle myself with all these man-made cultural dilemmas you guys have imposed upon yourself. I'm, I'm God. I have, I've come for a bigger purpose. I've come for a bigger reason. What is that reason? My hour has not yet come. That's what he says, right? My hour has not yet come. And whenever John the author records the hour, whenever Jesus says the hour in the book of John, it always refers to the cross. So Jesus telling Mary, I didn't come here to, to get all consumed up in these cultural expectations you guys have put upon yourself. I come here for a bigger purpose, for the hour, for the cross. I came here to die for my people and save them for myself so I can have a relationship with them. Okay, the hour... Uh, it's said 15 times, by the way, in the book of John, always refers to the cross. What do, my hour has not yet come. What does this have to do with me, Jesus says. So he removes himself from these cultural expectations. He doesn't get consumed by it. But, but second, we also see Jesus dealing with it. And you see this in verse 5. Well, you see this in the rest of the passage, but in verse 5, it's funny how Mary responded back to Jesus. After Jesus separated himself from miss. Miss, I'm not here for this. I'm here for a bigger purpose. Remember who I am. I'm the son of God. And then Mary answered, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's like, hold on, Mary. God in flesh just told you he has nothing to do with this. How assumptious, presumptuous of you to tell the servants to do whatever he's going to. He just said he doesn't want anything to do with this. It's not why he came. How can he just flippantly dismiss Jesus' separation? You see, Mary assumed something here, and she rightly assumed that Jesus' divine purpose does not negate cultural engagement. Jesus' divine purpose does not mean he cannot engage with culture. Yes, Mary says, I know you're the son of God. I know you're God-made flesh. I know you're, you have a bigger identity and a bigger purpose. And I know it's rather silly that these people are struggling with self-imposed cultural expectations that we've put upon ourselves, and they're tortured by it. But I also know that you are love in flesh. You care for us. You came down for us. You love us. And that is why I have full confidence that though this family's self-imposed cultural struggles are silly, you care. And you will do something. Servants. Do whatever he tells you. And Jesus does act, doesn't he? The rest of the story, he saves these, this, this family, this, this wedding host, from the embarrassment and the difficulty that may seem rather unimportant, rather silly. Here's a question for us today. What do we do when we're confronted with these self-imposed cultural problems? When they seem silly, do we just disconnect and dismiss them? 
What do we do? Even if they're unimportant, when a teenager comes crying to you because her friend made fun of her for her weight, what, what do you do? Oh, you shouldn't care about that. That's just self-imposed cultural expectations. Why don't you find your identity in Christ, you little idolater? <laughs> is, is that what we're supposed to do? When a friend struggles with being single for a time longer than what is considered normal in the culture? Come on now, there's people starving everywhere. How can you be so worried about this self-made cultural expectation? Stop looking at yourself. Is that what we do? Husbands, when your wives don't feel pretty. Parents, when your kids are broken down after minor bullying, if there is such a thing. What do we do? What do we say with these self-imposed cultural problems? Do we dismiss it? Do we say, I'm a Christian. My identity is in Christ. I'm a heavenly nationality. I don't belong in this world. Is that what we do? Is that what Jesus did? No. He didn't say, that's stupid. Don't care about what people think about your wedding. Just look at me. Yes, that's the goal, but that's not how he get. He doesn't just dismiss it as stupid. It's true. He doesn't allow himself to be entangled by it. We see this in his response to Mary, right? I'm not going to get sucked up all in this cultural stuff you guys are going through. This is self-imposed. It's silly. He removes himself, but he doesn't completely disconnect himself from it. As if he was insensitive and detaches and doesn't care and saying, that's, that's your own fault for caring about these cultural problems you've imposed upon yourselves. Okay, so he wasn't, he wasn't consumed by the world's cultural expectations. Neither was he completely disconnected from it. But what did Jesus do? What are we called to do when we engage culture? Well, I just said the answer. He engaged this cultural problem. He, didn't be cons he wasn't consumed by it. He didn't completely disconnect from it. But he engaged it. Now, what does that mean to engage our culture? Let's go to our second point. The Christian goal for cultural engagement. So as of now, we've seen what cultural engagement doesn't look like. It doesn't look like we're supposed to be completely consumed by it. Neither does it look like we're completely meant to disconnect from it. That's confusing, I know. It's almost as confusing as Jesus' prayer to the Father about us for his disciples in John chapter 17, verses 14 to 16. It's a confusing prayer. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But notice, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We Christians are not of the world. We're not meant to be fully and totally consumed by these self-imposed cultural expectations we've put upon ourselves. But also, we're not meant to be taken out of the world. We're not meant to just totally disconnect from it altogether. So how are we supposed to relate? What does engagement look like? Let's continue in the story, verses 6 to 7. Now there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Okay, so first we see here six water stones of, of jars that was meant for the Jewish rite of purification. That means it was meant to be filled with water, and later the water in these jars were meant to be used to wash hands before you eat. 
Now, washing hands was more than just a practice of physical cleanliness. Washing hands was a spiritual exercise for them back then to get spiritual cleansiness. We see this. I didn't make that up. We see this in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 2 and verse 5. Okay, let's read that. So this is Jesus interacting with the Pharisees and the Pharisees being upset at Jesus' disciples. Why were they upset? Let's read it. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, the Pharisees weren't going around checking for germs. That wasn't their goal. The Pharisees were going around making sure that everybody had everything down to the T so that they would not be spiritually defiled. And, and this says according to the um, uh, culture, the traditions of the elder, right? So these six water jars were meant to be filled in this wedding, were meant to be filled with water for sp- purification. That means for their hands, for our hands to be wa- for their hands to be washed before they ate, according to what? To the traditions, the culture of the elders. So let's continue. What does Jesus do with these water jars meant for external cleansing? He tells the servants to fill up these jars with water and then tells them to draw out for the master of the feast. Stick with me here, another explanation. The word draw out, you see that twice in the book of John, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, and chapter 4, verse 15. And every time it's used in the book of John, it's always meant to draw out something to be drunk, to be consumed. So when Jesus used it here and the servants heard it, that's kind of a weird thing to say. Draw out water? This, why do you, you mean pour out water? No, 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 draw it out. Assuming whatever's in, I know you put in water, but now whatever's in there is meant to be drunk. Okay? And it's become wine. What was water used for external cleansing is now something to be consumed and drunk. Water has become wine. Jesus solved the problem, right? He helped people get out of this self-imposed cultural difficulty, not only by giving them wine, but by giving them really, really good wine. You see in verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. See, usually what happens in wedding feasts is that uh, the, the, the host back then would give the good wine first so that when people's tongues were still able to taste it, They would taste the good wine, and then usually what happens, after a few drinks, your tongue becomes numb, and you're not able to taste as well. So therefore, at that point, they give the bad wine, because now their tongues, after a few drinks, um, can no longer have the same sensitive palate that it did have before they drank alcohol. Not that anyone here would know anything about that. So that's what they're trying to do. There are few... Alcoholic beverages numbs the tongue. And I'd love to spend the next 15 minutes to prove why Christians are allowed to drink, but I'm not gonna because that's not the main point of this passage, unfortunately, and I I won't go there. So what is the main point of this passage? Why did Jesus turn water into wine? Well, it's to solve an immediate problem. Yes, there's a cultural problem at hand, and I I wanna solve it, but also in such a way that points to something else. Let me stick with me a little bit longer. Wine in the Old Testament is very often a symbol of the coming of God to earth, the king and the king's reign 
on earth. A few verses that talks about, that connects wine with the coming of God's kingdom on earth and his reign on earth is Amos chapter 9 and Genesis chapter 49. I'm not going to go into it, but what's most relevant is Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 to 9, which is actually our call to worship today. Let's read it again one more time. On this mountain, remember our call to worship was about a portrayal of what heaven will look like. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Okay, so in this land, there's wine. What's going to happen? What is this land about? And he will swallow up on this mountain um, uh, and the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. So there's no more death in this place. That's all he's talking about, heaven. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and reproach of his people. He will take away the sins, the guilt of his people. He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What is the point of Jesus turning water into wine? It's to signify the one you're waiting for, the one that will save you, the one in whose salvation you will rejoice, the one that will bring about this heavenly reality in the future, he's here. Now. The one who will swallow death up forever, take the reproach and guilt of his people, the one you're waiting for is here. God made flesh, chapter 1 says. The Lamb of God, chapter 1 says. And wine is also used by Jesus in the New Testament to symbolize the shedding of his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. You guys know this. In communion, when we drink wine in communion, we're reminded of the blood Jesus shed for us. Matthew 26, 27, 28. This is when the uh, communion was institutionalized by Jesus, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I think continuation there. Um, I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, which is wine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So wine symbolizes the coming of God's kingdom in the Old Testament, the, the, the coming of the one who will save us. In the New Testament, Jesus says, as he turns water into wine, and as he uses wine later to signify his blood, this is how it's going to happen, by me shedding my blood on the cross for you. Now think about that transition. The water was something meant for external cleansing according to the traditions of the elders. What did Jesus make it into? He made it into wine, which signifies and points to the one who will truly cleanse them from the inside out. You see, you think you can be cleansed by these traditions of the elders. You think you can be cleansed by washing your hands away. You can't wash your guilt from that. I will do it for you on the cross where my blood was shed for you. See, Jesus involved himself with the immediate solution to a self-imposed cultural problem. Now they have plenty of wine. But in such a way that hints and points to God's bigger redemptive plan. He solves an immediate cultural problem, but in such a way that points to the cross, that points to God's redemptive plan and God's glory. That's called cultural engagement. Using something they thought could cleanse him from sin and guilt, turning it into wine, pointing everybody to himself as subtly and skillfully as he did, 
that's cultural engagement. This is how Christians, this is how we are meant to live on earth. Not to be of the world, not to be consumed by these self-imposed cultural expectations, not to be beat down and crushed by them like they so often do, nor are we called to completely disconnect from it, to create our own Christian nation separate from everybody else. We're called to engage it, be a part of its immediate solution, but in such a way that points others to God's redemptive larger plan, the cross. There's a company in the U.S. called the Barnhart Company. It's a, it's a crane company that lifts heavy things with big cranes. And what it does is um, it's, a, it's a global company at this point, and the owner is a Christian, actually went to the church that I went to and is involved uh, with, with the church in, the, in Memphis, Tennessee. And what this guy did, he didn't do anything crazy or spectacular. What he did was he was realizing that as a shareholder, as a majority shareholder, his, his, his profit would then increase along with the uh, income or the capital of the company, right? What he noticed is, man, my profit keeps increasing. I don't really need that much money. So what he did was he cut his board of elders, uh, board of his, his company, his CEOs or other shareholders around, Christians and non-Christians. And he told them, I'm capping my income here. And I'm going to sign it, and you guys keep me accountable to it. And whatever extra I get is going to be given away. Until today, as far as I know, he's, he's stopped out that cap. So no matter how high or how low, the, how much money the company makes, his income stays the same. And whatever rest I have, I'm going to give it away to God's work, the city, the world. Supports many church plants around the city, supports many mercy ministries um, in the city as well. That's nothing big. He wasn't like sharing the gospel. He wasn't like out there doing Bible studies in the company. I mean, if, that, if that's something to do, that's great. But something simple. He, he tweaked the culture of his company in such a way that made the non-Christians there probably think, why would he do that? Why would he care so much about, about this, about giving money away, about blessing others with what God has given him? He, he, he tweaked the culture at his work in such a way that pointed and hinted at a greater purpose in life. Okay? So what is it you're involved in? What cultural issues are you, are you in, in work or in school, with family, with friends? Are you called to be part of its solution or to shape it in such a way that points others to Christ? We are. Why are we called to do that? Let me get into this a little bit, what culture is. What was culture originally made to do? As diverse and as different as we all are, it's all meant to point to the creator. That's originally what it's meant to do. Culture isn't a bad thing. Christians often become so allergic to culture. They want to be so not of the world, they disengage from culture altogether. That culture isn't a bad thing. In heaven, culture will continue. Let's read Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. This is an image of what heaven will look like. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From what? from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. These are cultures. Everyone from different cultures, what are they doing? They, they're standing uh, before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We see all cultures of the earth, different peoples, coming and worshiping God. See, when we think of heaven, do we not often think that it's going to be filled with um, 21st century Anglo-Saxons, white Americans, or white Westerners? That's what we think. Or whatever culture you 
come from that Christianity is usually associated with, do we not often picture heaven as having a lot of those people? But the Bible says, no, 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 there'll be multitudes of culture, of people, of languages, of tongues from all the ages. That's what culture is meant to do. It was meant to point to Christ. So what we're called to do now is to make that reality realer today. What could be issues in our culture? What, what could you might have influence over? Okay, think about ways to engage it. Be part of its solution in such a way that hints to God's redemptive plan. If you want to talk more about that, I'd love nothing to do but talk to people about how to engage our culture so that it points more to Christ. I'd love to talk to you more about the specifics if that's something you want to do. But another thing I want to talk about is that these self-imposed culture um, uh, problems we have, they're not just things that we have influence over, but sometimes these self-imposed cultural problems have influence over us, don't they? My wife and I were hanging out with one of my high school old friends. This was um, um, a few years back. A girl uh, I knew, uh, and, and we're hanging out in the car, we're talking, and she's a non-Christian, by the way. She's telling us how um, um, anorexia and, and starving yourself is so common among women in Jakarta, especially in our age. And that people would purposely not eat as much or vomit what they've eaten to meet a self-imposed cultural standard that we've crushed ourselves with. And it's, 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 it's crushing us. It's killing us. Or perhaps workaholism. I'm not talking about the long hours of work demand. I realize that if you don't own your company, you're, you're at the mercy of your boss and you just have to work at that. That's understandable. But I'm talking about the kind of work that is driven and we overdo it because, because we think what we get from it or, or, or the resources we can, we can get from it can determine who we are. To prove to people I'm valuable. I have what it takes. I'm worth something. Look, look what I have. Look at how much I work. Whatever they are, these self-cultural um, um, expectations that's, that's has having influence over you, Christ calls us to not be consumed by them. Remember, you're not primarily of this world. This is not the place of your residence. It's in heaven. It's with me. We're called to engage in our culture, not disconnect from it completely, but not be completely consumed by it. Engage. Okay, let's move on to our third point. Okay, at this point, I think I have an idea of, of what engagement means. It seems really hard, though. Why would I do all that hard work? Why would I do all the hard work of connecting and being a part of solving cultural problems? It's much easier for me to just disconnect from it and just not have anything to do with it. And why would I do the hard work of analyzing my own heart and thinking about myself and, and, and realizing, f figuring out whether or not there are some cultural expectations that is currently crushing me, expectations that is... is self-imposed. It's easier to just go with the flow. It's easier to just let my definition of beauty and masculinity and success be dictated by the culture. Why do the hard work of engaging it? And how can we find the strength to do that work in solving our issues in a way that points other to others to Christ and not be consumed by it? Let's go to our third point. The Christian drive in cultural engagement. So we've seen throughout our story, throughout our narrative, that everything in the story points us to God's redemptive bigger plan, right? Jesus answers Mary, reminding her, ma'am, missus, I'm not of this world. I'm not meant to be consumed by all these cultural expectations you've put on yourselves. 
but also in, his res- in Mary's response to him and in what Jesus actually did, we see that he didn't just disconnect himself completely, but he engaged in it. He, 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 he empathized and he engaged and he pointed, he solved it in such a way that pointed others to God's bigger redemptive plan on the cross. But the imagery goes further. Not in just Jesus' answer to Mary, not in just the water turning into wine. There's one important category in this narrative that points us to God's redemptive plan as well. And it's the characters in this story, or the people in this story. Namely, the master of the feast, which is the EO, and the, br- the groom, the bridegroom. Let's continue in our story. Let's end. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the, the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. John the author is telling us here, he's using intentionality of describing the master and the groom as passive and unaware. The master and the groom is portrayed peculiar. They are the two people in the story that should have the biggest role. They should know everything going on about the wedding. They should be supplying everything for the wedding. But instead, they're, they're portrayed as insignificant, almost brushed to the side. They weren't really introduced until the end of the story. And even when they're introduced at the end of the story, they're, they're, they're portrayed as unaware and, and ignorant. And the groom didn't even say a word. It was just, just the groom. It was just there. Think about it. The two people that should be central to a wedding was pushed to the narrative, to the side of the narrative. And who was made primary? Jesus. Jesus was brought to the center. He was introduced first before them. And the other characters were introduced in relation to Jesus. If you look at Mary, you never see the name Mary mentioned. It's the mother of Jesus. And the disciples of Jesus, who in chapter 1 were described by name, were not called by name at this point. They were called the disciples of Jesus. The master, the groom, brushed to the side. Jesus brought to the middle. And it was Jesus who saved the wedding. What is John trying to communicate? A, commenta- a commentator says, the reversal is stark. What was unknown to the characters themselves is that at this wedding, Jesus was ultimately fulfilling the role of master and of the feast, master of the feast and the groom. Jesus is playing the role of master and groom. What, what does it mean? And how does that relate to us today? It means that the master of feasts and the groom is, 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 is meant to point to Christ as well. Let's, let's not forget another character. How does the master and the groom point to Christ and God's redemptive plan? And how does that affect us? How does that give us strength to engage culture? Let's not forget one more, one last character that's not mentioned at all in this wedding. A character that should be even more primary in a wedding. Who is it? It's the bride. Where is the bride in this wedding? Not, not talked about at all. And the question the reader should be asking, if Jesus is the true groom, who is the true bride? And what wedding are we talking about anyways? Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Who is the groom? Christ. Who is the bride? You if you've received Christ as Lord and Savior. Revelations 19, what wedding we're talking about? The wedding we're actually talking about is this one. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. 
it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Who is the groom? The Lamb of God, which is Christ. <coughs> Who is the bride? You. If you've received Christ as Lord and Savior. <coughs> Me, the bride of Christ, how can I be called the beloved of God? How can I be related to Christ in any way that's related to a groom and a bride? How can I ever be called pure and clean like Revelation 19 says? Does God not know what I've done? Does God not know my thoughts in secret? Does God not know what I do behind closed doors? Is God ignorant? No. He sees. He knows. So then how? How can he call me his beloved, his own? Because of the hour he came to fulfill. Because of the cross. Where you have been granted to clothe yourselves with white linen, bright and pure. Cleansed by his blood and his mercy. Now we no longer need external water cleansing rites to wash our hands according to the traditions of men. The king has come. The one who will take away our reproach, our guilt, he's here. He's paid for it. Our true master has come to die for us. Our true husband has come to pursue us. This is God's redemptive plan. This is his grand story. You think this wedding was all about this wedding? No. Jesus made it about the grand wedding of the Lamb of God and the church. The wedding ceremony we read earlier in Revelations 19. Do you see how this gives us power and drive for culture engagement? Okay, let's, let's talk about that and then end. How does this encourage us to not take the easy way out and just disconnect from cultural problems? Well, look at your God. He was, quote unquote, not here with us, but he came down and engaged with us. He became flesh. He did not disconnect himself from us. He pursued us. He engaged our, culture, our, our world, our culture, and shaped it in a way that points to him. The only reason why you're saved is because your God decided to not disconnect and be a part of culture and be a part of the world. Should we not then do the same as our God has done for us? But also, how does this protect us from being consumed by self imposed unbiblical cultural expectations that can so often be so draining and so tiring. How? Because he's called you his own. He's called you his beloved. He died on that cross for sinful men that sinful men like us can have our sins dealt with and we can be called one in relationship with the eternal holy God. Jesus, God on the cross, is shouting to you do you not see how beautiful you are to me? Do you not see how breathtaking you are to me? Let the world say all it wants. It doesn't want you. They must be blind. Because I'll do anything, anything to have you. That's how it protects us from being crushed by these self-imposed cultural expectations often put upon us. This is the gospel. God entered into the world, into our culture, became flesh, died for our sins, made us his forever. The gospel, therefore, drives us to connect with our culture, to engage, because our king has climbed down from heaven and unto a cross for us. And it also protects us from being consumed by culture, because God, our husband, has called and made us blameless when he came and climbed on that cross. You see? So now we encourage I encourage you to connect 
uh, uh, but in such a way that's not consumed by culture, but rather you're now free to engage it. Be a part of solving its immediate issues, but in such a way that points others to God's greater redemptive story. The greatest love story of a king who pursued his people, of a husband who pursued his bride, even unto a cross. May we, by God's grace, live the rest of our lives as engagers of cultures driven by his gospel. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you did not disconnect from us. We thank you that you came down into the world, that you climbed down from heaven and became flesh for us and pursued us. And let that, Father, help us to encourage us to not disconnect from our culture, but also to go to it and, and, and be part of your ministry in it as we pursue it as you have pursued us. But Father, as we pursue it, as we are a part, uh, as we are in it, let us not be of it. Let us not be consumed by some of the expectations that are so often put upon us. Not the healthy, good ones, but the countless unhealthy, unbiblical ones that tell us we are nothing, we are unvaluable, we are not beautiful, we are ugly, we are worthless unless we meet them. We've imposed that upon ourselves. Help us as your people not be consumed by it as we also are connected to it. Help us engage it, driven and protected by your gospel. Father, as we sing this last song, remind us again of your truths and dig it deeper into our lives as we sing unto you uh, the truths we find in your scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us all stand.